Creative, expertise, technology, patents, and people. Intellectual property is the core of business today. Protecting it is a priority. From a single innovation to large corporate IP issues, we're talking about it here on IP Council. Join IP Council host and attorney Peter Lando, partner of Lando and Anastasi, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome. Welcome to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. I am Peter Lando, partner with the Cambridge, Massachusetts intellectual property law firm Lando and Anastasi, where our practice includes all areas of intellectual property law. Of course, you can learn more about our firm at LALaw.com. On today's show, we will discuss certain aspects of the new U.S. patent law, the America Invents Act, regarding particularly the post-grant practice provisions. On September 16, 2011, the President signed the America Invents Act, which implemented and will continue to implement many changes to the U.S. patent law. Among these, first inventor to file, patent challenges, patent quality, and litigation changes. Clearly, this is the most significant change to the patent statute in almost 60 years. These changes were introduced to add efficiencies, improve patent quality, address present-day concerns and litigation costs and and, uh, risks, and to harmonize U.S. patent laws with most of the world. One major new aspect of the U.S. patent law is pre- and post-grant review procedures. These include pre-issuance submissions, post-grant review, inter parte review, and patent owner post-issuance proceedings, including the new supplemental examination. But what do we know so far about these new procedures and what strategic considerations must be made in their use? Now, joining me today to discuss the new patent law, the pre- and post-grant review provisions and its potential impact on corporate strategy is Mike Crosby, Intellectual Property Counsel at St. Cobain Corporation in Worcester, Massachusetts. St. Cobain is a Paris-based multinational with businesses in 59 countries and sales of almost $60 billion. The company manufactures building and construction products, glass, uh, packaging, and high-performance products. At St. Cobain, Mike supports the ceramic materials group of the company's innovative materials sector. A former colleague of mine, Mike has now been with St. Cobain for over 10 years. He is responsible for all intellectual property issues arising out of his businesses. Welcome to IP Council, Mike. Thank you, Peter. I guess a couple of uh, disclaimers first. First and foremost, the uh, the opinions and comments um, that I give will be my own and um, do not necessarily reflect those of the company or of my colleagues here in the law department. And secondly, um, I'm fighting a little cold here, so um, I'll try to keep my voice intact, uh, but I apologize in advance if uh, we have any Break up on that. Well, you sound fine to me. Uh, thank you again for joining uh, the show. Appreciate that. Um, let's get right into it. There's the the statute is uh, is quite a substantial number of changes to the statute, and we thought we would focus today's program on the pre and post grant uh, procedures. Um, I say pre. I'm really speaking of the pre issuance submissions. Um, t- tell us a little bit about that and how that might might work. Sure. Um, 
basically the new act um, either modifies or provides for new procedures in, in several areas. One of the um, the procedures is, as you mentioned, the pre-issuance submissions, um, which uh, provides an opportunity for a um, a challenger or someone who's concerned with an application that's making its way through the patent office to submit um, pertinent prior art references and to give a a detailed explanation of why those references might be uh, relevant to the patentability of the claims that are in front of the examiner. Uh, This has to be obviously done during the pendency of the application before issuance, and the time frame is it needs to be done by either the later of six months after publication of the application or the the first rejection by the patent office. So there is a window there where um, a challenger could take advantage of this. And hopefully, um, in, in certain instances, will, this will provide a low-cost way of keeping, um, you know, perhaps questionable patents from issuing. I see. So this is um, just just for some of our listeners that may not know, um, filing of a patent application by a party. Um, that patent application becomes public after eighteen months. Becomes published, and the public. Um, is privy to the what we call the prosecution, the back and forth between the applicant and the patent office. So w- after that publication, a th- an interested party might make a submission. What types of submissions, uh, Mike, are are um, anticipated? Well, the statute leaves um, the opportunity to submit patents, I- issued patents, published patent applications or any printed publication that's publicly available. So it has basically has to be a, a, a publication since the patents and the, the published applications are publications. Okay. And um, would the challenger, the, the submitter of the reference, um, have opportunity to comment on the significance or the relevance of the reference um, in view of the pending patent application? The challenger, the submitter, will have one opportunity to um, provide commentary, and that is with the initial submission. Um, After that, the examination continues in the normal course, which is basically a negotiation between the patent examiner and the patent applicant. The person or entity who submitted the prior art is is no longer um, afforded an opportunity to participate. So there obviously a limitation, but if you can get a, a good reference in front of the examiner and, and perhaps a good argument to boot on how it's applied, um, it, it certainly could serve your interest as a challenger. I see. And uh, so this, this appears to be uh, an effort on the part of the uh, the Congress or um, the drafters of the of the act to to enhance patent quality to give to give third parties uh, a chance to speak before the patent issues is that correct I agree with that assessment I think that to a large extent was the was a um, a significant goal of of the legislation okay. as a whole yeah and um, some of the other review or avenues for review that we're going to talk about further that 
general purpose. Okay. Now, uh, it also is a um, kind of a harmonization. Um, there's a uh, aspect of it that uh, I guess addresses harmonization. This this is a uh, submissions are available in some other regimes, are they not? They absolutely are, and um, I can say from from personal experience um, with with my businesses who um, operate in, in in multiple countries that these submission third party submissions can be um quite effective um the the jurisdiction that i see them most often is japan i see and obviously japanese prior art or japanese publications are not necessarily something that we would search thoroughly before entering japan so um there there are situations where we're seeing art or publications for the very first time and we have a, an interested third party providing the examiner with you know an argument of how it or position on how it should be applied so okay. it, um, it can be a challenge to overcome okay just just one quick other uh, point I'd like to uh, well ask actually is is there a fee associated with the submission and is is the identity of the submitter um, made known with regard to the fee um, I am not sure whether that has been set that yet. would be part of the rulemaking okay yeah I, I believe it will be part of the rulemaking um, I, I would not be surprised if there was some fee associated with it, but it's probably not going to be significant. Would be my my guess. Mm-hmm. And you're hitting a, upon one of the um, characteristics of this uh, particular um, submission that that may be advantageous to a challenger, which is you can remain anonymous. Oh, so you can do it through your counsel. Correct. Okay. Well, that that's effective. That is very effective. Okay. Well, let's move on. There's a lot to talk about. Let's talk about post grant review. This is a new. Um, kind of a new, again, another harmonizing aspect of our patent, uh, new patent act, and the post-grant review procedures. Can you tell us a little bit about that when it when it becomes effective and the timing and what have you. Post-grant review is is a brand new aspect of U.S. patent law. Um, it has been said on many occasions that um, it was designed to emulate U- European practice, which um, affords for post-grant opposition. And in a lot of ways, it does or will operate like the uh, European opposition uh, proceedings. First, I think it's worth noting that the post-grant review in the U.S. will not become effective until March of 2013. And on top of that, there will be a delay in actually um, implementing the, the provisions of this because it applies only to patents that will issue from applications that are filed after March of 2013. So this is a ways down the road. Um, we have the general framework in place with the statute, but the patent office needs to make rules regarding, you know, the details of this will, will make a big difference on, I think, on how, how it is utilized by, by different stakeholders. Um, for example, I, I'm looking at it more from a large company perspective, um, since uh, that, that's my um, context. But the rules relating to 
the amount of discovery available during post-grant review will most definitely go into the decision-making process of, of you know, many of the potential um, petitioners. The post-grant review will be available within a nine-month window from the issuance of the patent. The review can be brought um, on a number of different grounds, including um, uh, all of the grounds related to anticipa anticipation and obviousness um, and, and several other um, substantive uh, positions related to the sufficiency of the of the of the patent application. It, you can bring any evidence into this proceeding that you could bring into a court, and the I believe the thought of of Congress here was to allow for a quicker and less expensive way to to challenge patents, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and this proceeding will have to be finished, completed by the patent office within one year of of it being brought. So that's a very condensed schedule for um, looking at all the issues surrounding patentability. That's um, that's quite optimistic. I, that, that's by statute, though. So they'll they'll have to um, the patent office will have to not only put some robust rules in place regarding, as you said, discovery, but also hire an adequate amount of administrative judges to hear these cases and rule on the the various motions. I'm sure uh, that will be made. Uh, what's admissible and so on. Um, quite a challenge. Thank uh, goodness there's there's this long period. And I just want to go back to that uh, quickly. The, the post-grant review becomes available in March uh, of 13, so essentially 18 months after the signing of the America Invents Act, but only is available on patents that issued that were filed under the American Invents Act, that is, patents that were filed under the new regime of first inventor to file, which which is also beginning on March of 13. So in essence, then, uh, the first of these post-grant review procedures might not take place until 2014 or 15 even, or 16. Yes, so that's... way out, way, way out. But... Uh, but it'll be interesting, nonetheless, to see and to begin to strategize um, on whether you would take a patent challenge to the patent office or the courts. And um, what about estoppel effects and and uh, that 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 whole notion of I'm challenging in the patent office um, and I lose under perhaps a different standard of review uh, than um, can I later bring that same argument to court? Or if I had already brought it in court, can I bring it in the patent office? How is that in, in both directions? Yeah, that, I think that absolutely is going to be a, a, a critical component of, of using this in overall patent strategy, especially for uh, larger corporations. First of all, with regard to estoppel going from a concluded post-grant review proceeding into a subsequent um, civil action um, that asserts the patent. The any issue 
that could have been brought or was brought um, during the post-grant review is will not be retried during the the um, subsequent court proceeding. So this, in large part, will be a challenger's bite at the apple, so to speak. Now, the challenger will have the advantage um, over a civil action of a lower burden of proof or standard of proof in the post-grant review proceeding with regard to the patentability issues. So, in other words, after a patent issues, it's afforded a presumption of validity. If you try to um, invalidate an issued patent in court, you have to do so by clear and convincing evidence. So each issue that you're trying to prove, you have to reach that level of, of proof, clear and convincing evidence. There's a lower standard of proof called preponderance of the evidence, which basically means it's more likely than not that a certain issue uh, should go your way. That lower preponderance of the evidence standard is what would be applied during the post-grant review. So a challenger would have an advantage from that perspective Mm -hmm. and perhaps a disadvantage in that discovery may or may not be more limited, Um, the time frame is going to be more condensed, and you're going to be stopped from asserting the same issue in court later. Hmm. Okay. Um, There's a lot at stake there, a lot to think about. Absolutely, given the high stakes of of patent litigation um, in the U.S., uh, certainly something to be brought into the strategy equation. Likewise, with regard to civil actions that are pending, for, I, I guess first by way of explanation, um, there's a strategy that's employed from time to time if a defendant, well, well let's say someone who wants to assert, who wants to challenge a patent, will say usually that's a defendant in a patent infringement um, proceeding. If for some reason they find themselves in a in a um, inconvenient forum, maybe the the judge is not someone that's favorable to um, uh, overturning patents, or perhaps they're in a jurisdiction where um, the jury pool would be full of persons that are not fond of of the defendant. Um, you know, for instance, with a large company, perhaps they pulled out of the pulled their facility out of the uh, the area and moved jobs elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of reasons um, that that could be the case. Um, they may want to um, bring a, a re-examination proceeding to get a better forum for challenging the patent. Um, not only the burden of proof, but just the decision maker is removed from, from these other uh, aspects that they're they're worried about. Um, Mm -hmm. With the new law, if the petitioner has already filed a civil action challenging the validity of a claim, then the post-grant review proceeding will not be available. So this is Congress looking in and saying, we we would like to see some judicial economy here. If if we've already um, devoted resources of our courts to doing this, um, to looking at the validity of the patent, we're not going to also have this simultaneous proceeding going through the patent office. Okay, and and uh, I suppose then uh, courts might be more willing to stay 
but we'll get into that as well um, in a little bit as far as um, if, if they're understanding that the procedure is going to be completed in a relatively short time, um, maybe a litigation not dealing with validity but uh, infringement issues, uh, the court would be willing to stay that litigation while the PTO is handling the uh, post-grant review procedure. Right. In, in other words, from a timing perspective, if the, if the post-grant procedure was initiated, yeah, and then there was also perhaps a, a court proceeding brought almost simultaneously or maybe the, close in time, the new statute provides for an, an automatic stay um, okay. in most circumstances. There are some exceptions. Okay. All right. Um, we need we need to take a short break, Mike. And uh, uh, when 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 we return, I'd like to touch on uh, inter parte review and supplemental examination. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at seven eight one five five one ninety nine sixty, or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. Welcome back to IP Council on the Legal Talk Network. Today we are joined by Mike Crosby, uh, Intellectual Property Counsel at St. Cobain Corporation, and we've been discussing uh, the new um, post-grant procedures in, under the America Invents Act, the new patent law. And when we left off, we had just finished discussing uh, some estoppel effects of uh, post-grant review. And um, I understand, Mike, there's also a new inter parte review, which is uh, uh, subtly different, but, but different nonetheless from post-grant review. Maybe you can distinguish the new inter parte review and uh, its timing and um, uh, procedure itself. Sure. Um the new inter partes review is actually a, a modified version of procedures that are available now under the name inter partes reexamination. Um, it was uh, something that was put in place during the last, I'd call, major overhaul of, of the, the patent law. And it obviously applies to issued patents, review of issued patents, and it is narrower in scope with regard to the the type of um, issues that can be raised according to the the new statute it um, it would be limited to I, I call them prior art issues so anticipation and obviousness issues related to prior art and it's at, the basis for bringing this uh, inter parties review would be um, limited to patents and printed publications. So it, it's a little bit narrower than the post-grant review, which is basically any information you can get in, in front of the the, uh, the board would be considered here only patents and printed publications. As far as timing, um, its um, inter-parties review is available after nine, the nine-month period during which you can bring post-grant review um, or if a post-grant review proceeding has been instituted, you have to wait until after it has been concluded. Obviously, I, I would think you would want to do that anyway, but by statute, you must. Um, and also, interestingly enough, um, to, to those of us that practice in this area, the 
standard for for successfully bringing an inter-parties review is different than the than the standard for instituting a post-grant review. The exact wording um, I won't get into here, but I think it's interesting that by statute the standards are quite are are, are different, and whether that what that means on a practical basis, I, I think, is yet to be determined. So when a when a party brings an inter parte review um, under under inter parte reexamination, uh, one had to raise a substantial new question of patentability. Um, I understand that's been changed some. Uh, yes. Is that what you were referring to? Y- yes, that is what I was referring to, and and now the standard is reasonable likelihood that the petitioner would prevail on at least one challenged claim. So I love that uh, reasonable likelihood that you'll prevail. Right. Okay. So instead of substantial um, new question of patentability, reasonable likelihood the petitioner would prevail on at least one challenge claim. Practically speaking, is that a higher standard or a lower standard? I, it's a different wording. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, you know, as with any new statute, um, um, interpretation by um, courts and administrative bodies is necessary to 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 figure out exactly how to um, how to apply these standards. Okay, so uh, that's the timing, the threshold showing. Uh, the estoppel effects are, are similar or are changed from the inter parte reexamination? Um, I would say they're very similar. Okay. Um, and in fact, I, there's no notable difference that I'm aware of. So you have the same strategic considerations with inter parties review. If you're going to bring it, um, you better do a good job because it might be your one chance to challenge on on those issues. Okay. In other words, you might be foreclosed from bringing these same references or issues uh, into the court if you if you fail. Correct. Okay. So let's talk about as we as we round this uh, this subject out. Let's talk about the the new procedure, the supplemental examination procedure, which is kind of a, um, a second bite at the apple, a life raft, if you will, almost for patent owners if they become. Uh, subsequently uh, aware of some issue. Can you tell us a little bit about supplemental examination and what the statute lays out? Supplemental examination is is a new procedure, and it was enacted, um, to my knowledge, in response to uh, outcry by by patentees in general regarding the the proliferation of inequitable conduct um, claims against uh, against patentees when they try to assert patents, you you can be you can rest assured that if you assert a, a U.S. patent, that there will be at some point a, a charge of inequitable conduct. I, I'm I'm quite certain that a vast majority of cases would would have such a claim in them, um, and the universe of activity that could qualify as inequitable conduct has. If you look back historically, has grown, um, and it makes you know determining whether you have a valid patent or enforceable patent um, somewhat um, ambiguous because the activity would have taken place at an earlier time under different rules. So this is a way, the supplemental examination for a patent holder to go back in and repair, cure, or fix um, activity that may have 
um, risen to the level of inequitable conduct. Um, in other words, if certain things were not put in front of the examiner because they were cumulative in the opinion of the of the applicant, mm-hmm. or you know, you didn't bring a prior uh, rejection um, back up during subsequent examination. Um, there, there are a whole no- number of grounds. This would allow you to put this in front of the patent office and have the examiner give it a thumbs up or thumbs down on whether it actually was relevant. Okay. So this is um, an, an opportunity then to kind of clean it up, um, clean up the record, clean up the patent before one asserts it, if, if, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yes, absolutely. And um, once something is determined to be if the patent is uh, is survives a supplemental examination, any of the issues that were put in front of the examiner during supplemental examination cannot be used as a basis for inequitable conduct uh, in a subsequent civil action. Okay, so as as to inequitable conduct, but this this is um, has a ring to it uh, somewhat similar to uh, ex parte reexamination. Is that is that uh, so a patent owner, uh, and this has happened uh, in, in my experience, um, where a U.S. patent is issued and uh, its equivalent application is uh, being prosecuted, say, in um, a, a, another country um, and hasn't issued yet, and we learn of some reference becomes uh, cited in that other country um, – then uh, and and it's a it's a it's a quality reference. Now, what do I do with that? And as to my U.S. patent, I go back in and 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 under ex parte reexamination, um, try to distinguish that reference here in the United States to uh, uh, bolster my patent. Is is that somewhat uh, the the case here in supplemental examination, where I can subsequently learn of uh, some reference? I can bring it in. What's the standard? How do I get in? Well. Uh, ex parte reexamination will still be available. Okay. Um, it is, to my knowledge, unchanged. It is limited to um, patents and printed publications as a basis. Um, it's also limited in that you can only look at um, anticipation and obviousness. Um, in contrast, supplemental examination, you can put any information believed to be relevant in front of the patent office. The issues that can be raised um, are are actually not limited. Um, the threshold for instituting the review, th- there is none for supplemental examination. Okay. Um, in contrast, ex parte re-exam, there has to be a, a substantial new question of patentability. So it's possible you could get turned away at the door when trying to request re-exam. In certain circumstances, that would be fine. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're looking for just an affirmation by the office that it wasn't relevant, that the prior art was not relevant, that that could be good enough. But supplemental examination is, I think, intended to be open to all patentees, and th- there's no threshold for instituting it. So um, I think um, it, it will be probably utilized um, um Fairly heavily, and and it'll be available for the life of the patent. Um, yes, anytime okay. the patent is in force, this can be brought. And uh, will there be opportunity to amend during supplemental examination? I'm wondering, uh, broadening possible or no? To my knowledge, um, broadening of the patent will not be possible using this procedure. I, I think you would have to go with um, 
with a broadening reissue, which is also still available under new new law. Within two years of the Correct. issue. Correct. Okay. Okay. Um, any other strategic considerations? Perhaps um, now you, you come at it from a from a large company, as you as you said. What if what of someone? Uh, what do you anticipate? Um, uh, you, given all of these opportunities in the post grant and uh, pre uh, issuance uh, procedures, these new things. What do you anticipate as a, a someone working within a large company? Uh, um, I guess I have to this to answer that question. I I have to start by saying uh, by making an assumption. Assuming that this is properly funded, um, <laughs> it, which you know has been an issue with with PTO initiatives in the past, I personally see the post grant review as a step in the right direction for the patent system. I, it wouldn't surprise me to see more challengers taking advantage of this post grant review that. The, the same challengers would not be able to challenge a patent because of the prohibitive cost of of bringing a declaratory judgment action in a civil proceeding. I'm hopeful that um, it will be a low-cost, quick alternative to um, reviewing patents. And um, if it's, I think if it's funded correctly and it's perceived by the greater patent community as that, then it, it could be a success. Okay. So, so it appears then that the, the Congress through um, what, what have you, uh, any number of lobbying agencies, the big, the big uh, uh, organizations, the intellectual property owners, the AIPLA and others, uh, as well as some large companies uh, probably heard that um, – these types of issues should be addressed and that the U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office is a uh, more convenient forum as far as efficiencies and, uh, and costs um, than our courts, which, which uh, uh, patent litigation tends to be very, very expensive. So uh, the statute drafters then put these, put these provisions in place to help, to help uh, address some of those issues and uh, you see it as a um, – Possible, it could work out, and uh, time will tell, of course. And um, but it is is certainly interesting. Just when you think you you've seen it all, they they go and change the rules on you. And speaking of the rules, I guess the patent office is working on those as we speak. Uh, any any final thoughts, Mike? Before we uh, before we close out on the issue. Well, you know, we have the general basis for for all of these new uh, um, proceedings. But uh, the devil is in the details, as they say. So um, stay tuned. We're uh, we're going to learn a lot more about this between now and in the time when these are actually uh, put into motion. Very good. Well, that about does it for this edition of IP Council. Remember, you can find all of our shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also subscribe to this program through iTunes. And a very special thanks to my guest, Mike Crosby, for joining me today. Thanks, Mike. And, uh, Mike, if someone wants more information on this topic, how can they reach you? Um, they can uh, email me um, at uh, masslaw, M-A-S-S-L-A-W, at charter.net. Very good. And, of course, you can contact me at lalaw.com or email me directly at plando at lalaw.com. Join us next time for another episode of IP Council, and have a great day, everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. 
its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening today. Join us again on the next edition of IP Council, Talking Law and IP, right here on the Legal Talk Network.